0: I had a guy running around here this morning with a Green Bay Packer tie-on saying, um, make sure you end on time. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't the game like two? So I got to like 145. Is that about right? Okay. Well, you know, there's, I thought I'd, you know, growing up, you know, being a Minnesotan, you got to be tough, really tough. And in this kind of weather. Doesn't it separate the men from the boys? You know, you see, maybe even on TV you've seen the, the the tiger mom thing, have you seen that thing? You know, they're tough. Um, they come from an Asian culture, and they're. Well, you've got to be a tough mom here to live in this weather as well, even thinking about sending your kids out to a bus stop in this kind of weather. 60 above zero in most places. Floridians, let's say, turn on the heat, and Minnesotans, they plant gardens. Fifty above zero, Californians shiver uncontrollably while people in Duluth are sunbathing. Forty above zero, import cars won't start. Minnesotans drive with their sunroofs open. Thirty-two degrees above zero, distilled water freezes. And the water in Bemidji is just getting a little thick at that point. Fifteen above zero, New York landlords finally turn on the heat. People in Minnesota have one last cookout before it gets cold. You know, I, it's zero degrees. I, and I spent some years in, in Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. It, this is what is zero degrees. People in Miami all die. Minnesotans close the windows. Twenty degrees below zero, Californians fly away to Mexico, and Girl Scouts in Minnesota still sell cookies door to door. 40 degrees below zero, Washington, D.C., finally runs out of hot air. And people in Minnesota let their dogs sleep indoors. 100 degrees below zero, even Santa Claus is cold and abandons the North Pole. Minnesota public schools basically just open two hours late. Yeah. My friend from Atlanta called me and said, they because of some freezing weather and rain they had the whole week off but anyway get some salt um 400 degrees below zero all atomic motion stops absolute zero on the kelvin scale is what that is hell freezes over and people in minnesota can be heard cold enough for you yet You've got to be tough, right, to uh, live in this climate and this culture. Let's uh, take a moment and pray. I'm going to ask you just to pray for the women that have had this retreat. They'll probably, many of them, be driving home on their way back and ask for safe trips through this cold weather. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in the hearts and lives of each and every one of us. And particularly, want to thank you for how you've worked this weekend in the lives of the women at our church at this retreat. And now ask that you give them safety as they travel. Father, we also are here in this moment. I would ask that you would help put aside and help us to train our hearts and minds to, to listen, not to me, but to you, God, where your spirit of God might speak to our hearts to change us in the very structure of our soul for the sake of your kingdom. I just pray, God, there are people here coming from all different places. They are coming from places where they're feeling hopeless, they're feeling maybe completely vulnerable, That some might be here who are filled with joy and celebrating something external in their lives that has happened. But, God, we would ask that in this moment you would show up and that you would speak. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you know, everybody likes a good story. And when we get into this Matthew 13, it's all about stories. But people have different tastes when it comes to stories. Some people like Poetry. There are some people who are, 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 are abstract thinkers, so they pick up books and they like to think abstractly. They'll read philosophy or they'll read political theory or economic theory, and that seems to be the thing that they enjoy. And, and then there are what I call technical study people, those who have that kind of engineering mind. And, and they like to read mechanics, you know, the popular mechanic kind of magazine, or they like those computer magazines, which are all over the shelves these days, and 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 then there's what I call how-to people. Did you know there are people who actually like instruction manuals? You know, and I asked the first service, and I saw a few hands go up. And you know, so it's like recipes and all these things, and how to make something and do something. But everyone, I, I would guess that everyone likes a good story. We're we're built that way. Everyone, no matter what you're bent. Enjoy stories because they have the ability to entertain and they sometimes are told to persuade or there might be a time a story is told with a moral objective and, and then there's some that are told as they're told they, they give a profound insight into maybe your personal behavior or the behavior of some others and, and they allow for you through a story well crafted, well told to get behind a person's defenses Stories have the ability to, to lead you into it so that you're kind of in it and you're a part of it and you're following it. So now you're almost with them in the story. And as you're with them, it has the ability to kind of sneak around and get right into the very heart in a way that like blunt truth doesn't or facts or or some kind of abstract thinking. And and if I was to do that or someone was to just move that way, you have the ability unemotionally to kind of defend yourself and to parley kind of in defense argument or discussion with regard to what's going on, but stories seem to get underneath it all. And Jesus understood that. The Word of God tells us that. In fact, there's a parable that was told, You know, how do you tell your king, your, your boss, your, someone who's over you, who, who has position, how do you tell them they've messed up and screwed up? It's really hard to do that kind of thing. So there's a guy, Nathan, who God comes to him and says, Nathan, I want you to tell the king. I want you to tell the king that his, his sin, his adultery with Bathsheba was not a good thing and that, that he needs to understand this. And so he's got to think about how am I going to do it? Do you come in his presence? And so Nathan, I think out of the creativity of listening to the Holy Spirit, comes to this king and he comes to David. He says, David, I've got to tell you, it's a really incredible thing that happened in the kingdom. He said, here, and he starts to tell the story, he says, there's this really rich guy, he had a whole bunch of sheep, and, and he had so many sheep that he didn't have to worry about ever, you know, going without. And then there was a guy who lived right next to that guy who had just this little patch of land. And on that little patch of land was this little lamb. And he prized this lamb. He loved that lamb. That lamb meant everything to him. I know it's a strange thing, but somehow his heart was so tied to this little lamb. And the king, I mean, I mean the rich guy comes out someday and he looks over the fields. He sees all his sheep and he sees the one little lamb. And he goes, I want that lamb. He tells some of his servants to get that lamb. And he gets that lamb, brings that lamb. And as he's telling the story, David's face gets a little flush. He's a little bit angry. He's a little bit upset. He's a guy. He's a king who, who is who is just. And he says, Look, you get, we got to do something. Who is this guy? And Nathan looks at him and goes, you're the guy. It's you. You see how stories work? They have the way to draw you in, and that's what Jesus knew. And so Jesus, when he when he came to this passage in Matthew 13, and we're going through the whole, whole whole account of this Matthew passage, where you announce the king, chapters one through four, you declare the kingdom at five through seven, he demonstrates the kingdom eight through nine, and and then in verse ten, in chapter ten, he begins to, to tell everyone to do it. He teaches his disciples to go out and do what he's been doing and announce what he's been announcing. And the king has come, and now you come to eleven and twelve, and you begin to see in eleven and twelve the re- the, the responses of people to this king. And and this king comes and they give all these responses, and it ends in chapter 12, with them rejecting the king, asking a question, "What do we do now?" The kingsmen rejected what happens to the kingdom. And so Jesus in chapter 13, goes out and he tells stories, because he's got to help these people understand, to get behind the way that they had been thinking. There are eight parables in Matthew 13 and the first four are told publicly to the crowd. He comes to the people of Israel, not just the Pharisees and not the scribes and not the political leaders and not the, just the, the tax collectors and not the fishermen, the farmers. He takes everybody He says, those of you who have been told for years and years about, about the king who's going to be coming with the kingdom, you need to understand something. So he starts with four stories, four parables. And we know this to be the case if you look at verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. And such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat, sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And there are four then parables in chapter 13 that are told in the house. After he tells the four to the crowd out by the lake, we read in verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house. Probably the same house that he was in before. And his disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, we heard all these stories, but we don't get it. We're, we're not quite understanding the point. And so Jesus begins to share with them the point. Twelve times, twelve times in chapter 13, Jesus says, the kingdom is like he uses parables. Parables are simply extended metaphors that seek to use something natural to teach something spiritual and so let 's read together this parable chapter twenty thirteen verse twenty four through thirty and as i as I read this, remember. He is, I believe, trying to build on a train of thought. He is just told about the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil. And again, if I was to name it, it's about the parable of the soils. And now he moves to a different kind of metaphor, the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. It says in verse 24, the kingdom is like, remember, 12 times in this one chapter, the kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to, to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now you may be wondering, like I was when I read this, what's so difficult about this? What, what's making it so hard for the disciples to understand it? But you have to understand, again, is that they have had a, a paradigm that they've had to understand, or what I call a mindset, which is what the word, just the word itself is a good word. Their mind had been set in a way of thinking because of what they've heard, what they've seen, what they've understood, and what they've been taught all throughout their life for hundreds of years they had in their mindset that a king would come who would bring a kingdom. And that kingdom would be set up when the king came. And that's how mindsets work. You get an understanding of something and you can't hear or see anything else. Your mind is stuck. Now, for instance, let me ask. Anybody remember the hit song written by J.J. Kale? It was made popular around 1970 by Eric Clapton called Captain Midnight. Anybody? Well, you probably shouldn't know it because when I was like in seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade, whatever that song came out years ago, I, I remember singing it Captain Midnight. I'm singing a song and my brother, who was very loving, two years older, looks at me and, and you know how loving brothers can be? You idiot. That's not Captain Midnight. Anybody know what it is? After midnight. After midnight. Well duh, but I couldn't hear anything but Captain Midnight. Now that seems so silly. But that's exactly how paradigms work. We understand it's like the trains. When trains first came, they were people movers and they couldn't think of how to make money on in fact trains after they started to build highways and all these other things, what do you do with trains until they go, Oh, we're not really just people movers, we're transportation systems. There is a group of people called the people of Israel who had grown up under the teaching of the Old Testament and the prophets who said, guess what? A king is going to come. God promised again and again. There will be a king like David. This king will come. When this king comes, just like David, he'll set up his kingdom. And you'll have this reign that was like David who had Solomon and it will be a golden age. It will never end. It won't be a person who is in any way wicked or unrighteous. In fact, this person won't have any sin in him. This will be this person who will be God's own son. And when he comes... The kingdom will come. Now, remember, you pre-that. So Jesus has to stop to these people who in their mind it has been set. They are stuck. They don't hear Captain Midnight. They hear the king's coming and the kingdom will come. And when the kingdom comes, the king will impose it upon everyone immediately. There will be no delay. He will come into the land. He will raise up a group of people. All of Israel will follow him. And little Israel will become this great and mighty nation. And all the people will be subdued, And everyone will be under his rule. Forever. Amen. And heaven begins. And Jesus goes, no, you have to understand what happens with the kingdom. When the king is rejected, when I am on a cross, and when you see me on a cross, and when you see me rise again, and what will really make it difficult for you to understand is that even if I rise again, you think I'm going to set up my kingdom. And the disciples even ask him, are we going to do it now, even after he's risen from the dead? And he has to say, didn't you get Matthew 13? And Israel is you we've got to start with the first parable. Parable of the soils or solar. Did you get this? That what I said I was going to do is when I came, I was going to set up my king. The king was rejected. And the king was rejected by Israel. But there was a purpose for this. Even God will use this purpose. So when the, when the Israel rejects you and, and this land rejects you, he is going to make it available for everyone in every nation to come to him if they're open and willing to the king ruling But it won't be an imposed, ruthless, external kingdom that will be set up at that time. It will be a kingdom that will come to people whose hearts are open. And everybody's heart, he says, the parable of the soils, is like soil. All around you, everywhere you live, everywhere you work... Every person you come across, when you go through the grocery line, when you go to the gas station, when you are picking up your clothes at the cleaner, I don't care, wherever you go, their heart is like soil, and their heart is either like the soil that is hard, like the path, their heart is like the, the soil that could be like the rocks. When they hear the word of Christ, they respond to the King, and then soon and quickly after, the heat of trials come, they hear this and they wither away, or their hearts are like those who respond, and when they begin to respond, they begin to grow, but they don't deal with the things in their life, the The worries, the attractiveness, the pleasures of life begin to grow like weeds and they grow around it and choke out the life of the plant, dies. And yet, some there are people that you and I walk by every day, live with day in and day out, whose hearts are like good soil. That when you, as one who takes the word of the sower and takes the love of the sower and you sow it into their hearts, something happens. And things change. And that's why I think he begins with this parable of the solar. He wants people to know there is a time that he has come, where, where all throughout this history till he comes again, all this period of time, God is at work throughout the entire world, sowing seed in the hearts of people. Now, that's what he explains in that first parable. There's a bit of a sense of a time delay there because that's not what they were thinking. Right. They weren't thinking about people freely hearing about God's love, feeling God's love, experiencing the truth of his word and then receiving it and beginning to grow in their life. They were thinking about someone coming externally and forcing his will upon them and setting up the kingdom. So the first one is very clear. God comes to you and to me, and if if any of you are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, if any of you are in that place, it's because somehow someone was so touched by God's love that they either shared it from a message or they shared it with you at at the office or they sat down with you as a friend and they told you about this one who had loved them. Their soil had been open. But now he goes to the second parable. And it's important here that you understand the interpretation at this point, because Jesus wants to make some things clear. He changes the idea of the seed, which was the word of Christ, which comes to the heart. And now he talks about the seed being people who respond. They're good or bad seed. It's seed that grows up like wheat, and there's seed that will grow up like weeds. So they're sitting there, and I think they come back in the house. And maybe Peter, um, I'm speaking for all the guys here, I think. We're not quite sure what you're getting at on this weed thing. So Jesus goes, verse 37, he answered. The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. Which so is an interesting thing when we look at the parables, and we look at the life of Christ. He is at no problem in parables saying he's the guy, he's the Messiah, he's the king, he's the one from God. You know, people sometimes will say to well, Jesus never said it. You know what? He couldn't say it directly or he would have had his, he would have been on the cross immediately and never got the message across. So he was so crafty and so wise and so brilliant that what he would do is in parables and stories, he would make it very clear. Here I am, if you want to know it. So he says to the disciples, not to the crowd, he explains to the disciples, the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, which is him. The field is the world. It's the place you live. It's every person that you have an influence over in any way, big or small. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Those who have responded with good soil. And the weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. And he uses that in a broad sense because we know it's not just the devil, it's the work of the demonic spirits all around that are, are free at this point in this world during this kingdom. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. And verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will set out his, send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Now, now catch this from verse 39 on. Jesus is making something fundamentally clear, and that is this. There is a day of harvest. There is a day when this age will end, when all hearts will come to a place where they will have been either good or bad seed, where the soil will begin to manifest itself. And 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 that means at the end of the age, there will be a harvest. Even though people have died, there is a harvest time. Jesus is making this so clear. He is not in any way mincing His words. This is all a part of the story. And He makes it very clear. He says the weeds will be pulled up and burned in the fire so it will be the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out His kingdom, everything causes sin and all who does evil. There will be a purification. He's going to weed it out. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There really is a heaven and a hell that we have to respond to in this life. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. His typical response is, whoever has ears, let them hear. It's that point again that if your spiritual ears are open, not your, you know, let it go through your ears, it can go in your mind, but let it go into your soul, your soul into your spirit and let your spirit be open to what God is saying. There is an external kingdom coming. Revelation 19 talks about it very clearly. There is a day that will come when Jesus himself will come. The king will return a second time. And the picture is this in Revelation 19. Then, says John, I saw heaven open and oh, what? A white horse and its rider. See, Jesus came at one time on a colt. He came in this triumphal entry before his passion and death. He rode into town. And in the days when a king was coming to to bring war and to judge and to, to impose their will on people, he'd ride in on a white stallion. But when he came in peace, he'd ride in a little cult it was an acted out parable of the triumphal entry was so now he comes in with this white horse and the rider named faithful and true judges and makes war in pure righteousness his eyes are of a blaze of fire his head many crowns he has a, a name inscribed that's known only to himself he's dressed in a robe soaked with blood and he's addressed the word of god and the armies of heaven mounted on the white horses and dressed in dazzling white linen follow him. And a sharp sword comes out of his mouth because it's his word that divides. It's his word that judges. When Jesus was here on earth, and we'll get into this in a second, it wasn't him who was judging. It was his word spoken truth, Here's reality. You've got to decide. It's the same way with us. And he says, armies of heaven, mounted on white horses, dressed in dazzling white women, follow him, and a sharp sword comes out of his mouth so that he can subdue the nations and rule with them with a rod of iron. Here is the imposed kingdom yet to come. He treads the winepress of the raising, raising wrath of God, the sovereign strong. On his robe and thigh is written, King of kings, Lord of lords. There will be a day, Jesus makes clear in this, but you guys have got it wrong. It's not now. But yet the kingdom has come to every soil that is open and good and humble and soft and willing to be prepared to receive day in and day out the Word of God who will rule into their life, who will transform their life. And as their life is transformed, they will bring the kingdom of God. Heaven will be, in a sense, in your heart in such a way it's a window for others to see. So that every place you step, every place you put your foot, Every place you go, you have the ability to bring this kingdom into that place. That, truly, that's amazing. And so he says here, this parable of the weeds, it's only found in Matthew, this parable. And it's purposeful because he's trying to make a point. Jesus builds on their understanding that he has just told about the soils, that this delay that he hinted at in the first parable becomes primary truth in the second. God delays his judgment out of love. Because he wants to reach this world. And we are followers of the king with the opportunity to live with heaven in our lives now. To live with the kingdom of God ruling over our lives now. In order that we can bring that kingdom to every place we go. So the kingdom of heaven is likened to a farmer. And in the weeds... Um, just to give you a quick run through on this, the weeds. There's a word. There's a there's a, a kind of weed called the bearded darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L. Because some people ask me afterwards, D-A-R-N-E-L, which is so difficult to distinguish from from wheat. In fact, it grows. It it intertwines its root with the wheat so much so that if you pull out one, you damage the wheat. And it, it, it's so difficult to distinguish. You can't tell it till the very end when you're ready to harvest. And here's the owner servants, they come in and the owner servants, Jesus tells us, are are, are flabbergasted. They planted all this weed, the seeds. They saw what the owner did and they're kind of going, well, what happened? How the the weeds come? And the owner is very clear on that. He says an enemy came. And what's really interesting, he doesn't deride them. He doesn't in any way indict them for their neglectfulness or their irresponsibility that weeds would grow up. He basically says in this age, in this world, there are two things operating, the kingdom of heaven and the hearts of people and also this Kingdom of the darkness of the spirit of the air who rules Satan with demonic spirits has the ability to plant his own seeds and to raise up those. And and so what happens is you've got good and bad growing together in the world and their response would be just like yours and mine. Well, shouldn't we pull them out? Shouldn't we we rip them out? He goes, don't do it because it will destroy the wheat. Well, let me share with you just two things that I want to close with. There is two very important things that Jesus is making known in this parable. There's many things, but I'm going to give you two. And the first is this. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come without judgment. It is delayed. We know there's a harvest coming, and in this time we don't know what is good or what is bad seed. And even if we do, it's not our job to pull it out to judge, to condemn. We are called to do this in this world. We are called to live in the world. We're called to live in the world. We're called to understand what it means to engage our culture, to live in such a way that when we are at work or we're with our friends and our neighbors or in social circles, we are engaging our life with people because we don't know what is good or bad soil. It isn't our job to judge. It is our job only to love. So the first thing is that we live in the world. The second thing I want you to know is that we're called to love those who live in our world. And so when we talk about living in the world, I remember I went to Wheaton College and I had a, someone come up to me and said that they're applying there in the first service and was asking me things about it um, You need to understand, I was so afraid going there because I didn't study in high school. I got in by the skin of my teeth. I'm there my freshman year. The first class I'm taking is from this professor who was rather engaging, rather entertaining. But it was a class, a Bible class called Christ and Culture. It's just what Jesus seems to be talking about here. And the professor was interesting. He said, you know, all throughout history, people who are, are, are sons and daughters of the kingdom, people who have heard the message and begin to live with, with God in the kingdom, make choices in how they will engage in the world, what their response will be. Throughout history, you'll see sometimes people go and they say, well, we can't live in this world. We are so afraid of this world that we have to move to a place where we create our own little community so that all the people who are wheat get together away from the weeds. It's happened all throughout history. And then there are some, he said, that they live in the world, but they're so afraid of the world. They live with fear. They live with this protectionist mentality. And that is that they, they want to so much when they go out and they do their job and they kind of, you know, are nice and, and kind to people, but they retreat back into the fortress of their own community, often called churches, and they, they come to the They live for their own church experience. They live for their programs. They live for the people in their church because they're so afraid of getting stained by the by the weeds of the world. He said, then there's another group of people. They go way to the other extreme and they engage culture in such a way and they participate in it, they don't make a distinction between what is just culture and what really is sin. And in that process, not understanding that, he said, you know, one of the things you have to understand is that love under, undergirds all of it. So When you begin to understand how do you engage with the world, you have to understand what does it mean to love God and to love one another? What does it look like to love them? But what happens is they get so engaged, so involved, they become so much like the world that they lose any distinctiveness and they become like it in every way. But then there are a group of people who understand this parable. And they go out in the world and they live in the world. And when they live in the world, they engage in the world in such a way that they recognize the fact that they are not afraid. They don't need to be afraid. they got the holy living God within them. They know that everywhere they go, they have the kingdom of God. They know that every good deed they do, every good word they say, they know that every act of forgiveness that is a part of their life. They know that every person they bless, they know that every prayer that they pray, they know that everything they do in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit has the ability to transform the world they live in. And um, he would actually kind of teach like this. And he said, that's what Jesus called us to be. In the world, not of the world. In the world, not living apart from it. And when you come together with other community of believers, it's not because you're going, oh boy. It's, so... it's kind of like, man, how have you been loving people this week? How can I pray for you when you go back out? And you come back together and you praise God, you get filled up and you begin to start to realize what really concerns me, what really worries me doesn't need to worry me because I have a God much greater. And so the second thing is to love those in the world. So you begin to realize that you engage in the world, you're not afraid of the world. You begin to realize that every opportunity that you have out there is a soil, a heart that could respond to God. Everybody. And it's not easy to do to live that way, to live lovingly without judging but that's how Jesus did it. Listen to John eight fifteen. Jesus looks around and says, You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. Listen to John 12, 47-48. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, doesn't do them, I don't judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very, listen to this, the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. Now you go, how does that work? I remember I was reading it. Okay, he doesn't judge him, but his words judge him. Go, how does this whole thing work? Ever, ever thought that? Well, as I was just praying through that, just imagine this fact that Jesus loved with no judgment. Imagine the fact that those people who were doing things that were making decision, having choices that they're making, that were bringing some horrible experiences in their life and hurting people, he still loved them. He didn't judge them. Now, he, he did speak words of truth, and he said, the words I speak are the things that judge you, but in my heart, I love you. In fact, I can tell you what's true and even if you choose to not keep what I just told you, I'll still love you. Did you catch that? My attitude towards you is still love. I began to think about it. I think, you know what? it would be. It's, it's as simple as this. If I had a person who came up to me and they're thinking a little delusionally because they're thinking, you know, I, I just... I have a really cool idea I had, and that is, I'm going to go up to the 20th floor of one of the buildings down in Minneapolis. I don't need anything because I've got this sense that if I stand there and I jump, I could fly. And I'm looking, I'm going, yeah, I don't think so. And we go, but I, but I really believe it. I really feel it. And you know, I've heard of other people who fly, yeah, but they're in planes. And so he goes, and I I can say, you know, I love you so much, but I'm going to tell you the truth. If you get on the 20th floor, you jump off it. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's reality. Here's truth. As I understand truth in this world today, you jump from that and you begin to go down. You're going to hit the bottom. You're going to get hurt and possibly probably die. But, you know, if you choose to do it, I still love you. I just won't be able to love you in this world any longer, but I'll still love you. I mean, I really do. It's not my. I'm not here. I'm just telling you what I know and understand to be true. That's what Jesus said. He came and He said, these words are not mine. They're really from the Father, although I'm speaking them. I still love you. You can go off, and you can put yourself in the arms of someone that you know is adultery. You can do this or that. And I'm telling you, I still love you, but there are consequences for choices that you make. And those choices will reveal themselves when reality hits. And reality hits eventually, at a time called harvest, for everyone. Okay. Now, John 3.16. A lot of people are going to be holding signs up at the, uh, at the Soldier Field this week, or tonight, this afternoon, as the Bears beat the Packers. Um, but it's a well-known verse. For God so loved the world. I sometimes think those same people need to come into the church every Sunday and hold up the sign three seventeen, John three seventeen, which goes on to say for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And I'm not saying those people are doing that, they're just maybe speaking truth. But the church needs to remember this all the time that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Or as the message says it this way God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to a point accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He didn't do that. He sent his son to help, to love, to transform people with what was true. So I'm going to close with this story. I get together every year with a group of friends who I went to college with, four other college buddies, and one of my college buddies, his name's Mark, shared a story about his wife, Pauline, basically his her grandmother. Pauline's father was a man named Paul Brandt. Some of you may know he was a noted remarkable surgeon, author, spent time in a leper colony and, and, and just loving people, doing the work of a surgeon. Well, Mark shared with us last year the story of Pauline's grandmother. Her name was Evelyn. And uh, he tells us that when she was a young woman, someone had really who had experienced God's love shared God's love with Evelyn. And and, and Evelyn's life was touched by the love of God. And as a result of that deep love of God, she began to pray about what she'd do. And she sensed this call that she should go to India. And so as a young single woman going to India, at that time, probably in the 20s, 30s, that was a big deal. I mean, that was a very unsettled land. So she goes to this place in India, a very remote area of India, in fact. And as a, as a young lady, she's there, and she, um, I don't know if it was there she met her husband. A, number, a few years later, she met her husband, a man named Jesse Brandt. And so Evelyn and Jesse get married, and, and they chose to go back to that place where she was at in India. And to love people with the love of Jesus so that they might know how much God loves them by doing very practical things such as, as, as practicing medicine, basic, basic medical hygiene in many ways, by, by educating and helping some of them in the area of reading and, and, and then also building some infrastructure and developing different things. Just basically loving the people in very practical ways. And for seven years they did this without a single convert, no one even really responding in any way to them, kind of just looking at them like, well, you're strange, you've moved in here, you're living with us, you're different from us. And I'm not sure what's going on until finally one day, the priest of a local tribal religion, one of the villages, one of their priests in that village became very ill. And he was laying dying and no one else, not family members of this priest or others would come near him because they were so afraid of the illness. It was something that they were afraid of catching. And so no one would care for him. And they all feared his illness, all except Evelyn and Jesse. And Evelyn and Jesse spent time with him and talked to him and cared for him and loved him. And when he was dying, he called people around the village together and he made a declaration to the people. He said, you know what? The God of Evelyn and Jesse must be the true God because they are the only ones who would be with me in my dying. The only ones who seem to have a love different than this world knows. And it was so interesting. As he lay dying, he actually had it all planned out. He, he had his children, and he, which a tribal chief can do. He entrusted his children to Evelyn and Jesse, which is a huge statement to the whole village. And it was at that point, because of their love, their practical love, having been there over time for a long period of time, especially seeing the life of this leader, became kind of the turning point in that village. And people began to turn to Jesus and wanted to know about Jesus. And Evelyn and Jesse, they spent another 13 years there, and then Jesse died. And about that time, Evelyn was 50 years of age, and everyone expected Evelyn to go back home. that she'd return to her land, which was England. But she wouldn't hear of it. She pressed on, simply loving the people in her world who were different than her, lived differently, think differently, dressed differently. But she just went on and said, I'm going to live in this world. I'm going to engage them in this world. I'm going to love them in this world. And she was known and loved for miles around in many neighboring villages as Granny Brant. And she stayed there for another 20 years. And she served under that mission board that she was with so faithfully. And when she turned 70 years old, she got word from the home mission board that they were they were done. They were giving her notice that they wouldn't give her another five years, that she she really needed to come home. Well, she was kind of stubborn, Granny Brant was. Remind you of anyone in our own congregation, maybe a senior, older statesman, pastor. I won't give his name, but it rhymes with tall. Um, <clears throat> Hi, Paul. And they held a party for her. It's time that you know they would celebrate and they kind of were cheering her on and, and they gave at the end this opportunity for her to speak. They had just wished her a good trip home and she came up and she this little woman said to them, "Can I tell you a secret?" They all listened in impressed and, and she goes, "I'm not going home. I'm staying." And you know, a number of them was thrilled. The people that lived there, the mission people, are looking around like, "What are we going to do?" She took from her own little resources, and she didn't have a lot, and she built a little shack. And with that money that she had, the little bit she had, she bought a pony, and she began to pray for the mountains in that area. They're called the Mountains of Doom. Sounds like something right out of the Tolkien trilogy, doesn't it? And her prayer was this. God, just give me a mountain. And the villages and the people in that mountain, let me, let me love them to you. It wasn't, God, let me retire it wasn't God. Make sure my 401 okay, even 401k is good, or give me a nice pension. It was God. Would you give me that mountain? Would you use my life to love these people to you? So in her 70s, as Mark was telling you the story, she would get on that little pony, go up the mountain and villages, and visit these surrounding villages, loving them, caring for them, all the things she had done. She did that for five years on her own with no mission support. Then one day, at 75 years of age, she actually fell off this pony because this place is really steep and she broke her hip. And her son, Dr. Paul Brandt, came back, this eminent surgeon. And he said, You know, mom, it's really time to go home now. You've got you to gotta look at it. You've had a great run. You've really been able to make an impact here. It's time to turn this over to others. It's time to go and move on. And she said, I'm not going home. This is my home. And God gave me this mountain. Tiny, frail Evelyn Brandt spent another 18 years loving those in her world, traveling from one village to another on a little pony with falls and concussions and sickness and the frailty of age. Nothing could stop her. She so loved those people that she lived in that world with. And finally, at 93 years of age, when she could not get on that horse, that little pony, anymore, the men from the villages of that mountain of doom came down because they loved her so much and they set up a schedule and they would put Granny Brandt on a stretcher and carry her from one village to another village. So she could tell people and she could express to people God's love. She lived two more years and then passed away. Evelyn is probably someone you've never heard about before. But those in her world knew her and loved her. And many, when it comes to harvest, are going to be that good seed. Because she looked at every heart and its soil and said, how can I love that person closer to Jesus? And I really believe God is still looking for somebody here in their own way. Not to go to India, but in their own way, in their own world of influence, with their own unique gifts who are willing to, with the wounds that they've had in their life, devote themselves to Jesus because of the love they've experienced from Jesus and say, Jesus, my world may not be big, but I want to learn how to love those people into a relationship with you. Because we have, as he said, a time in which to do this. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And I'm going to close the service, guys. We're not going to do a song. Um, in deference to Packer fans. Um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to stand before the Lord here, would you? And I just want you with your heart quiet before the Lord to say, Lord Jesus, in my world, is there someone that you want me to love? Is there someone that um, is across my path and it's just really natural for me to come across their path? But it's going to take supernatural stuff from you to keep my mind um, alert and open to this. It's going to take a supernatural action from you and sometimes help me love this person that has come to mind. And I ask you to think about it. And You may not have someone right now pray about it. But if God brings someone to mind, begin to say, God, how can I love them in a way that they feel love? Not, not ways that you think, but how they would be touched by God's love. Father, Thank you for letting us know how much you love us. Thank you when our mind gets stuck that you're willing to unplug it, so to speak, to allow us to think and see and to experience the things that you want us to experience. Now, God, fill us every place we step, everywhere we go. Would you go with us to bring your kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen.